who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. You are listening to episode 17 of Double Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 33, Diurnia System, 2358, August 12th. The bridge seemed crowded after the weeks of having just the duty watch section up there. The captain emerged from the cabin and joined us on the bridge just moments before the countdown time clicked into the imminent area. Per standing order, the jump team was convened on the bridge at jump minus 15. Set jump stations, Mr. Burnside, the captain said. Jump stations aye, captain, Mr. Burnside answered. Make the announcement, Mr. Mallory. Still, it was routine, mostly. Mallory finished making the announcements and I moved from the deck watch to the systems console. Burnside took the deck watch for the transition and Arletta already had the astrogation controls running, she'd been monitoring our position for half a stand. The sail and grav keel generators had already been shut down, and the billy was coasting along on a pure ballistic trajectory toward a precise point in space. Mr. Burnside started the jump checklist. Engineering? Mel was in the engineering console and said, Sail and keel secured, Burleson drive charged and ready to engage. Astrogation! Arletta answered, Course plot locked, ship is dead on plot, jump is locked for transition. I didn't have anything to add to this checklist. For transitions, the systems console was only manned in case of an emergency. Mr. Burnside reported, ship is ready for transition, Captain. Jump when ready, Mr. Burnside. The captain gave the authorization. Jump when ready, aye, Captain, he replied formally. Authorization for jump has been given. Remove safety interlocks. Prepare to jump on astrogator's mark. Mel responded, safety interlocks are disengaged. Burleson Drive is released to fire. Astrogation has authority and control. Astrogation has authority and control, Arletta agreed. Stand by for Mark in four ticks. Her eyes watched a countdown time on her display, and I could see the ship plot on her screen out of the corner of my eye. Stand by for Mark. Transition in ten. Mark, she said. Mallory started the countdown announcement, and I think I held my breath. Transitions always seemed... A little magical to me. 
I understood that the Burlsons created a wormhole by bending space-time in such a way that two areas of space separated by a very large distance became contiguous. It was like drawing a small circle on the top and the bottom of a piece of paper, and then bending the paper so the two circles were flat against each other. That was our wormhole, and we just moved from one side of the paper to the other by dropping through the hole. Mallory finished his countdown just as the Burlson discharged and folded the universe. I could see the discharge represented on my console, but really felt nothing at all from the energy crackling through the systems and into the space around us. The view out the forward port simply changed from being a panoramic view of the deep dark to being a panoramic view of the deep dark with one bright star practically dead ahead. Jump completed, Arletta announced. Position is within parameters. Transition log to 2358, July 12, time 1014. Thank you, Ms. Novea, Mr. Burnside said. Plot and lock for break all orbital. Plot and lock I, she repeated. Engineering, secure Burleson. Put up the sails, if you please. Burleson is secure. Grav keel and sail generators are spooling up, she acknowledged. Course plot to break all is locked, Arletta announced. Helm, come to new heading, Mr. Burnside ordered. Helm locked to new course, sir, Miss Jackson confirmed. Transition complete. Drive secured and the ship is under sail, Captain. Thank you, Mr. Burnside. Secure from jump stations, he said. Resume normal watch. Secure from jump stations, aye, Captain, Mr. Burnside replied, resuming normal watch. He turned to Mallory and said, Make the announcement, Mr. Mallory. I secured the systems console and went back to deck watch. The captain was already disappearing down the ladder, and in a matter of three ticks, Julia and I were alone on the bridge again. The chrono showed 10.43. We looked at each other with a kind of now-what-do-we-do expression and grinned. Well, Miss Jackson, I said, what'll we do for a stand until Miss Novea gets back? Parcheesi, sir? she asked, looking straight ahead. I don't think we have time, I told her. It's a long game. Charlotte came up from the mess deck with coffee, and we settled in for the last stand of the watch, and I made sure my logs were up to date. At 11.40, when our letter came up to relieve me, she leaned over and asked, You ever hear of Groundhog Day? I looked at her curiously. Yeah, it's an old earth thing, I said. Something about a big rodent predicting spring. Something. I can't remember where I ran across it, she said, but this big rodent would allegedly come up from his hibernation. If his shadow scared him, he'd duck down into his hole, and that was supposed to mean something like another month and a half of winter or something. There must have been a quizzical expression on my face. She flicked her eyes at the captain's chair, and it was all I could do not to snort out loud. Captain Groundhog? I asked. She grinned a lopsided grin. Well, we don't have quite a month and a half left, but... She left the rest unsaid, and I had to chuckle softly. I haven't had a chance to tell you, but I got a break on the intercom thing, I told her. I know if there's somebody listening, but the logs all show that the intercoms haven't been used since they were installed. She blinked, and I could see her mind ticking over behind her eyes. That seems very strange. You'd have thought they'd at least have been tested. I shrugged. Well, yeah, they do test them, but the only records in the log are from the installation when the ship was built, and the periodic tests. Could somebody erase the logs? Anything's possible, I told her, but they'd have to be really good to do it without leaving a trace. She looked at me then with an expectant look. What? I said. You want to stand my watch too, or would you prefer that I relieve you? She asked with a grin. I chuckled as I said, Ship is on course and on target. Transition successfully accomplished. Standing orders are unchanged. You may relieve the watch, Ms. Novea. I have the watch, Mr. Wong. 
Logged at 2358, August 12th, at 11.45 per standing order, she answered. We'll see you in a few stands. I headed down the ladder just as my tablet bipped. I almost slipped on the step when I saw it was from the captain. The cabin at your earliest convenience, it read. I confess that I was more than a bit frightened by that short message. The timing and wording were equivalent of, you better be in the cabin before you do anything else. Thinking over the last few days, I was a bit concerned that maybe I'd be getting out to walk the rest of the way to break all. I took a tick to use my tablet controls to trigger the intercom on the cabin, and then took a few steps down the passage to knock on the cabin door. One word. Enter. Came from the other side. I opened the door, stepped in, closed the door behind me, and then braced to attention. Third mate, Ishmael Huang, reporting as ordered, Captain, I said. Yeah, it was a bit of overkill, but no junior officer ever got cashiered for showing too much respect to a captain. It went with the turf. And with the audio pickup live on the wall above his desk, I was going to make as good an impression as I could in case it ever came to listening to it. Something told me I'd need it because Mr. Burnside was there as well. Mr. Wang, I told you when we first met, I don't like smartasses, troublemakers, or surprises. I like my universe orderly and predictable. You, Mr. Wang, are disrupting my orderly and predictable universe, he said without preamble. Somehow he still didn't seem to understand that my name did not rhyme with gang, but with gong. I didn't plan to correct him. He didn't really ask me a question, and I was at attention. The fact that I had no idea which particular thing he may have perceived as disruptive just encouraged me not to admit anything he didn't know about. He and Burnside glared at me for a long tick. "'You have nothing to say in response, Mr. Wang?' the captain asked. "'I'm sorry, Captain, but I do not know how to respond. If the captain would enlighten me on the actions which he finds distressing, I'd be happy to modify my behavior to be more in keeping with the captain's wishes,' I said at last." "'Are you being a wise-ass, Wang?' he asked. "'Not intentionally, Captain,' I said as evenly as I could. "'I'm at a disadvantage here in that I don't know what incident, activity, or behavior that you find problematic.' "'Let's start with interfering with a watchstander on duty,' he said. Burnside smirked. "'I'm sorry, Captain, but I don't know of any instance where I interfered with a watchstander's duty,' I told him. "'Could you be more specific?' Mr. Burnside tells me that he had to reprimand you for interfering with Mr. Aponis while he was on duty, the captain said. Oh, yes, captain, he did reprimand me, I said. And do you have anything to say about that? He asked coldly. Why, yes, captain. I was not aware that sexual assault was considered part of the messenger of the watch's duty. It's not listed on any of the standing orders, and I've received no instructions that require or authorize watchstanders to abuse other members of the off-duty crew, I said with a straight face. Since Mr. Burnside's reprimand was the first and last I've heard of it, I assumed that all other physical and sexual assaults that Mr. Aponis may have engaged in have gone without incident. Burnside's face turned an exquisite shade of red. The captain stared at me for a long, cold tick. "'Do you presume to make fun of me, Mr. Huang?' he said finally. "'No, Captain, it's not my intention.' The only reprimand I received from Mr. Burnside was for preventing Mr. Aponis and Mr. Mosler for sexually assaulting a junior member of the crew who was trying to work out in the gym, I said. The situation has not come up again where I have had any call to interact with Mr. Aponis while he was on duty. I hope that little fib would fly. At least I'm not aware of any additional infractions that Mr. Burnside may have noted, but has not shared with me. It was a blatant hedge, but maybe I could get away with it. The cold sweat was actually running down the back of my legs, I was very afraid of what Burnside was going to do, but he wasn't saying anything. 
The captain stared at me, and I was suddenly not sure if he were angry or merely pausing for effect. I could almost see him counting to ten before he spoke, as if somebody had given him a formula for dressing down a junior officer. Over the Staniers, I'd had my share of hide stripped, often for good and sometimes sundry reasons. As I stood there, I began to think that Captain Rossett was trying to follow a script that he'd memorized. Very well, Mr. Wang. He slapped the desk with an open hand. How do you respond to the charges that you're inciting the crew to flout authority? By asking who's making such charges and on what evidence, Captain, I answered. I really didn't know which possibility was scarier at that point, that the captain was a viciously psychopathic individual with delusions of grandeur and a side order of megalomania, or that he was an incompetent actor who was following a poorly written script in a play that somebody else was directing. Come now, Mr. Wang. You've told the crew that they can skip ranks in the ratings exams. Do you deny it? He asked sharply. No, Captain, that's true. I have told the crew that they can skip ranks, I said. The current CPJCT regulations for ratings exams specifically permits the practice of taking a higher rating exam in order for those individuals who have the required and demonstrated skill and knowledge to leapfrog the lower ratings. I took a breath. That's not flouting authority. It's following the rules set forth by the Confederated Planets Joint Committee on Trade. The crew still has to study for the exams, take the exams, and pass them. And then what happens, Mr. Wang? Have you thought further than the end of your nose? He snapped. I'm not sure I follow, Captain, I said. What happens when? When we have a ship full of crew who have ratings above their station, Mr. Wang. I realize you're a junior officer, but don't tell me the Academy has started graduating fools. By this point, the argument was lacking only a small white rabbit. I was pretty sure that the Red Queen was sitting at the captain's desk, and I took a deep breath before answering, realizing the danger I was in. Then we proceed to port, Captain, and some of them will undoubtedly find other berths and move on. Exactly, he said with great vigor, and another slap on his desk for emphasis. He held up his forefinger, pointed at me in what appeared to be a very well-practiced gesture of threat. Mister, this is your only warning. I broke no interference in the smooth running of my ship, and you will tow the line from this point forward, or by the gods, I'll have you thrown off the ship at the next port. Do I make myself clear, Mr. Wang? Crystal, Captain, I said as confidently as I could. I was having a very difficult time keeping a straight face by that point. This reprimand will go in your personnel jacket, Mr. Wang. This is hardly an auspicious start for a career in the deep dark. You may go. Yes, Captain, I said. Thank you, Captain. I turned and left the cabin as smoothly as possible, closing the door as gently as I could and still be certain that it latched. Chapter 34 Break-All System, 2358, August 12th The chrono said I had time to wash the sick sweat off my face before lunch in the wardroom. I made sure the door to my stateroom was secured before I went into the head. I didn't think it would help much if Burnside wanted to come in, but it was psychological distance as much as anything. I kept trying to make sense of what had just happened, and I wondered where and how Burnside was going to exact his retribution. One thing was certain, and that was that I needed to finish the coding so my tablet would turn on the mic for whatever room I was in. I had a very bad feeling that I'd need it. At 12.30, I made my way to the wardroom and slipped in. Burnside was there, and so was Mel. Freddy came in right behind me, and after a couple of heartbeats of uncomfortable silence, Miss Davies entered with the first of the servings, and we took our seats. The meal was a typical midday meal, with some kind of noodle in a sauce. There were some green vegetables that looked like banapods, but were a bit chewier. 
and an isolated bit of white mystery that could have been meat or possibly bean curd. In the month or so aboard, I'd learned to miss good food. It was odd, really, that the food in the summer cruises wasn't all that memorable. Some of the ships had good food, some were mediocre. None of them really stayed with me as memory as much as Cookie's spiced beefalo casserole had. I was half inclined to pay the galley a little visit and talk about recipes. But given the session in the cabin, I thought perhaps keeping my head down and my nose pointing straight ahead might be a better idea. After all, the food wasn't bad, just not good. Conversation offered little refuge either. Burnside's rough approximation of polite table manners was difficult to talk over, and his contributions to the discourse usually consisted of unarticulated grunts and the odd belch. Freddy, as was her habit, kept hunched over her plate while Burnside was in the room, and Mel just smiled sadly in my direction occasionally. Still, on the bright side, he was on watch as much as Arletta and I were, and we managed to have some lively and enjoyable meals when he was on watch. Even Miss Davies seemed more relaxed. Through the course of the meal, he never referred to the interview in the cabin or indicated that anything at all had happened between my leaving the bridge and appearing in the wardroom. Yet I knew that he had been upset, and I couldn't help but fret over all the ways he could attack me. Luncheon ended in good time, and Burnside left the wardroom with his usual lack of grace. When he'd left, Freddy said, There are few things so constant in this universe. And she snorted a small laugh through her nose. More is the pity, Mel agreed, and turned to me. So did the captain call you down to the cabin? I blinked at her a bit stupidly before saying a week. Yes. Why? She smiled warmly. You had that look when you came in. Freddy, who was already sitting up straighter, added, And it's his pattern. She turned to look at me carefully. Are you all right, Ishmael? She asked after a moment. I think so, I answered, at least for the moment. But I didn't make any friends in the cabin. Freddy gave a little shrug at that. Nobody does, she said. Any insights into that subject we talked about in my office, Ishmael? Mel asked. Some significant progress, in fact, I said. I need a few more stands to finish up, but I'm feeling pretty confident that the next time the Bumble Brothers bother me, I'll be ready. Freddy smiled a crooked grin. You heard that name, huh? She asked. Yeah, I told her. My watch section is a wealth of information. Mel and Freddy both chuckled. Penny Davies came in to clear then, and we all stood and helped her load up that first tray before getting out of her way. As we stepped out into the passageway, Freddy stopped me with a friendly hand on my forearm. Be careful. Now that the captain has had a chance to reprimand you on the record, David has fewer constraints, she said softly. She looked up into my eyes, and I realized just how short she was. Not that he had all that many before, she said, with just a trace of bitterness. Thanks, Freddy, I said. I'll be as careful as I can, and I shrugged. But if he wants me badly enough, he'll do it when I'm asleep in my bunk with no witnesses. She nodded, just a little rocking of her head up and down, very subtle. Yes, was all she said, before turning and heading down the passage toward her stateroom. I checked the chrono, and I had about four stands before my watch, time for a short nap, followed by a long run. I headed for my stateroom and pulled out my tablet to set an alarm. That's when I noticed that the intercom in the cabin was still open. I triggered the mic off and wondered what I'd recorded. On the one hand, I was horrified that I'd left it that long. It was one thing to record my conversations with the captain. I had a feeling I might need them. The ethics of self-defense had priority. It was another to record conversations I had no part of. While I could certainly find part of my brain that said, just because you're not in the room doesn't mean they're not plotting against you, 
There was another part that recoiled from the idea that I might be that person who bugged the ship. A few stands before, I was being paranoid over who was listening. Would anybody be happy to learn that it was me? There was also the issue of legality. Was it illegal for me to record people without their knowledge? In a corporately owned vessel in the deep dark, was there any real expectation of privacy? A cold chill raced down the small of my back. Would I be in more trouble if I produced the recordings than not? Considering what I thought the group might be capable of, I wasn't sure. I stumbled back to my stateroom, peeled off my ship suit, and crawled into my bunk, pulling the covers over me. The conflicting demands of self-defense and ethical behavior warred with each other. I didn't know if I could sleep, but the narrow circle of concern ended with a dark curtain of exhaustion. Say what you will about watchstander Merrig around. After over a month in the deep dark, your body will sleep if it can. Minor concerns like ethical conflict will not stand in its way. A small sudden sound woke me with a start. I lay there blinking and listening, trying to make out where it had come from. And then my tablet beep, beep, beeped again. I punched the alarm off and let my breath out. The chrono read 1600, and I wanted to run before I got ready for watch. That much stress was a heavy load to be carrying, and I knew from long experience how to bleed it off. I was glad to see Lignaria stretching when I got to the gym. The lanky engineman had been my running companion on more than one occasion. She was on third watch as well, but as power section watchstander, her duty station was in Engineering Central in the other part of the ship. Ah, somebody to run with, I said when I saw her. Yes, sir. These six-on, six-off, six-on days are killer, aren't they? Oh, yeah, I answered with a rueful grin. Intellectually, I know that it's only 18 stands from start to finish, and with a little nap in the middle, it's really not that bad. But some days it sure seems like a long work day, doesn't it? Yes, sir, she agreed with a chuckle. Very long. She finished her warm-up and started up her treadmill. While she was occupied in that, I triggered the local intercom to record anything that might happen in the room and did a few stretching drills of my own. I stepped onto the machine and fired up my favorite program. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see Lignaria casting little glances my way and grinning. I smiled and asked, Is there something funny, Miss Lignaria? Do I have my shorts on backwards? No, sir, although your shirt is wrong side out, she answered. I glanced down at the sleeves and realized she was right. So much for the dignity of officers, I said mournfully. Sir, I don't think you ever need to worry about that, she said with a smile. What are you trying to tell me, Miss Lignaria? I asked with a mock frown. I have no dignity to begin with. She blushed a little, or maybe it was the running that was coloring the back of her neck. No, sir, she said. That's not what I meant. I was just thinking of Mosler calling you a girly man, and... She stomped then, and a look of panic skittered across her face. I recognized the look. It's the one I probably got when I discovered that I was about two-thirds of the way across a conversational minefield, and I really didn't want to take that next step. The look that I probably got when I realized that the only thing keeping me from stepping on the mine was the fact that my foot was firmly planted in my mouth. She cleared her throat and looked straight ahead. Uh, that is, sir, I, I can't believe he'd think you were a girly man. I can't believe he'd pull up such a stupid phrase and think it was any way insulting, I answered, trying to put her at ease. I mean, how do you follow that? Doo-doo head? We slapped along for a while in silence before she glanced at me again. Can I ask you a personal question, sir? She asked. Sure, but I reserve the right not to answer, I told her. You really had rating in all divisions? Yep. When I started out, circumstances forced me into taking a job on the mess deck of the Lois McKendrick over in the Dunsany Roads quadrant. I didn't like being helpless, being in a position where I had to take whatever option was available. I glanced at her, and she was nodding her understanding. 
So I liked being aboard ship and figured the best way to make sure I could stay aboard ship was to get qualified to take as many different jobs as I could. Makes sense, Sar, but why not just climb the one division's ladder? I shrugged. It was a trade-off. Keep in mind that I was a land rat. I had no background in this at all. Being a spacer was almost totally incomprehensible to me. I reasoned, for whatever it's worth, that it would be faster to get two or three half-share ratings than a half and a full. I shrugged. I learned a bit about ship's operations that way. You don't come from a spacer family then, Sar? she asked, genuinely curious. I shook my head. No, my mother taught ancient lit at the University of Neris before she died. Oh, I'm sorry, she said reflexively. I nodded to acknowledge her response, but continued my train of thought. I had to learn it all the hard way, as an outsider. I'm surprised you got a ship at all, Sar, she said. There aren't that many people who can get through the Union Hall. You almost always have to know somebody or have some background. I shrugged. I didn't know that at the time. Nobody told me I couldn't, so I just went ahead and did it anyway. She chuckled at that, and we lapsed into a friendly silence. Soon, the hum of the treadmill's motor and the slap-slap-slap of my feet on the spinning tread took me into that quiet place in my mind, and I just ran. Thanks for listening to Double Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. The music is a medley of jigs, eavesdroppers, both meet and drink, and off we go by Great Big C from their self-titled debut album. Find this and other songs by Great Big C at music.podshow.com. This has been a presentation from Durandis, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.solarclipper.com. <laughs>